Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a very special episode, part of our ongoing celebration of 500 episodes and 10 years of the Empire Podcast. And of course, 15 years of Hot Fuzz, the cracking Edgar Wright Simon Pegg cop comedy that was their follow up to Shaun of the Dead. It opened 15 years ago today, in 2007, on the day perhaps better known the world over as Simon Pegg's birthday. Oh, and some saint or other's day, I'm not quite sure of the details. And so, please accept the following as our birthday gift to you. A birthday gift that will make a lot of you listening to this at home feel very, very old. Recently, as part of our all-day celebrations of episode 500, we were joined by Messrs Wright and Pegg live on stage at King's Place for a one-hour deep dive into Hot Fuzz, which was all kinds of fun. Let's call it, if you will, a spoiler special. Now, ordinarily, we keep these spoiler specials for those who subscribe to our spoiler special channel. That's kind of how this thing works. But with this one, and indeed with all the shows that we did as part of our 500th episode celebrations, I felt that it should be widely available. You know, for the greater good. Oh yeah, there's no one around to echo that. Huh. Anyway, there will be a longer Hot Fuzz spoiler special featuring Team Empire waxing lyrical about the film. That's going to be up later in the week for spoiler special subscribers. And if you don't already subscribe to our spoiler special channel, heartily recommend it. Go to empire.supportingcast.fm for more details. It is the price of a coffee to subscribe for a month. And there you will find our entire archive of spoiler specials, all 200 plus and counting, and new spoiler specials coming at you all the time. Upcoming episodes include Spider-Man No Way Home with the writers Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, and Uncharted with the director Ruben Fleischer. For now, though, sit back and relax as I take Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and a very special mystery guest on a walk down memory lane. Oh, and one quick note, there is at least one C-bomb here, I think just one. C-bomb here. I usually censor C-bombs, but in the spirit of the hot fuzz swear box, I've left it in. Too f***ing right. Enjoy. Hello pod, I am Chris Hewitt and welcome to a very special spoiler special, I really should stop saying special, in these intros. Today, February 5th, marks almost 15 years to the day since hot fuzz was released, or should I say unleashed into cinemas. That makes me feel really, really old. But uh, but it's okay, because it was all in the name of the greater good. Oh, you guys! You've come to the right place! Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's follow-up to Shaun of the Dead, their first film together, is a masterfully constructed, terribly British, and very funny cop comedy slash action movie parody that gave us plenty of blistering gunplay, even more blistering wordplay, and in the central relationship between Pegs, Nicholas Angel and Nick Frost's Danny Butterman, a buddy movie partnership for the ages. It's a movie I quote on an alarmingly regular basis, from you're off the fucking chain, to swings and roundabouts, in it, uh, to murder, 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 murder. And of course, the now legendary Yarp, and its counterpart, Harp. <laughs> oh, should we not bring them out? We should just we should just do quotes. And so when we were thinking of a movie that we could give the spoiler special treatment here at our all-day celebration of episode 500 of the podcast, it was a no-brainer to plump 
for Hot Fuzz, but we also couldn't celebrate it without inviting some very special guests. So please welcome Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg! Amazing stuff. All right, settle down, honestly. Murder, 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 murder. Where did that come from? Who came up with that? This is, this is point 15 years on, you, you, you can't remember. I don't know who came up with uh, murder, murder, murder. I, I cannot recall either. I think it's just fun to say in a West Country accent, isn't it? <laughs> what were your writing days like on Hot Fuzz? To, to, sometimes, sometimes torturous. Writing is great when it's going great and like pulling like your nails out when it isn't. It's just like, I think, I think we kind of both came out with a newfound hatred of each other. (laughs) (laughs) I think like not that you didn't appreciate Agatha Christie, but you really appreciate Agatha Christie when you try and write one of those things because you realize that those are so like deftly kind of put together. So I do remember, I do remember a bit on a particularly taxing day. (laughs) <laughs> where you'd reached like rock bottom and you bang, you banged your head against the wall and you said, I just want to be in front of the camera. <laughs> what a wanker. Um, <laughs> the hardest thing about writing it, I seem to remember, was the fact that there were two stories that both of which had to make sense. One was Angel's first um, kind of uh, theory about what which he takes to Skinner in his office and... That all had to really play and make sense and be the kind of Agatha Christian kind of, you know, labyrinthine plot. But then there also had to be the, the, the truth of it, which was much more simple, which was it was just the NWA doing the killing. So, but both of those stories had to track together. Yeah. And that was a fucking headache. <laughs> it really was, wasn't it? So at what point in the, in the writing of this uh, did you decide to do something this complex that's one of the things I love about it. The fact that it is, this, as you say, a labyrinthine plot. This is incredible murder mystery going on, this, this huge conspiracy. And, you know, whenever people were thinking about Hot Fuzz initially before it came out, we just thought action movie parody. And you guys could probably have just done that and taken the afternoon off, but you decided to do something much more complicated. Was that in, baked in from the, from the off? Well, the, uh, the first draft for the script was 200 pages long. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was long. I think also it was just something where I guess like we were just trying to kind of, you know, kind of pay homage to everything we liked about all police films, <laughs> you know. So, so it was something where, yeah, the first draft was quite unwieldy and we did a read through with it um, of the whole thing, you know, and then, you know, we went about kind of cutting it down. And then also after we shot it, we kind of, I think we sort of cut down kind of like another like 20 minutes, half an hour out of it. But um and there was famously a, a cold character that was lost, which was Victoria, who was Angel's love interest, which mm. we felt, initially felt just kind of obliged to have. And then we realized that his love interest was Danny. So <laughs> we didn't need Victoria. So it became a bit of a sausage fest in that oh. regard. There were a cu- but there were a couple of scenes that were written for Victoria where once she was cut out, we just find and replaced and changed Victoria's name to Danny. <laughs> so the whole scene where they're back at like, like daddy's flat and that you don't know how to switch off. That's basically like a Victoria scene, <laughs> but it just worked. 
It was very simple once we'd sort of made that decision of like something's got to go. Let's just concentrate on Danny. You know, um, it was it, it was it was amazing how we didn't have to rewrite his dialogue. <laughs> That's why. So, so who was the the driving force behind this one initially? I think it's Edgar was probably just um, we'd done Sean. Sean was something that both of us had kind of conceived of on the set of Spaced, and we'd sort of spoken about it and. Um, but going into to Hot Fuzz, I think you sort of took the the lead in terms of what we would do next, right? I, I found it, it took me a long while to kind of like find my way into it and until we started going out on patrol with the cops and, and I started to <laughs> yeah. kind of like find it. Um, but yeah, you, you, I think you spearheaded it, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think it was sort of partly because, I mean, we both grew up in the West Country, but I, I sort of had a sort of just a big obsession growing up in Somerset of just like, I used to love watching cop films, particularly like the Dirty Harry films. But watching Dirty Harry films as a teenager, it felt like watching science fiction. You know, it's like sort of like, you know, big like, there's big leap between like Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry and Nick Berry and Heartbeat. Um, <laughs> and so... Hot I fuzz is the like, middle of the Venn diagram. <laughs> so I thought there was something funny about like, and, and, and in fact, you know, I had done like when I was, in, when I was 18, I'd made a cop movie in my hometown. But in that, it was just like, it was very sort of like. You say movie. <laughs> it's a real stretch, like an amateur film. Um, but in that, it was like, it, in that, it was just, it was like, my friend was just doing like a silly, like Clint Eastwood accent. And it was like an American cop in, in some set with no explanation. But I can't, I can't quite remember what was the idea in terms of like, or what if like, but that was the sort of the, that was the thing that I think I first said aloud. What if we did a cop movie in Somerset, but made it look like, you know, like a big American movie. And, and, and also like the thing, the thing that was fun for us and, and probably where like Simon kind of like locked into it was when, when we started doing interviews with real cops and you could kind of like just, there was so much that we got out of that. And so much of the stuff that seems like the sillier, more outlandish stuff in the script is all like really from their anecdotes. There's a line in Last Night in Soho, which is straight out of one of the interviews we did with the cops. And when I saw Last Night in Soho, uh, I almost stood up and went, hey, I know that. <laughs> I was there also, that he said to you as well. Yeah, he did, he said it to me. Um, you have to explain it now. Well, you yeah. explain it. It's your film. <laughs> well, um, Terence Stamp says a line in Last Night in Soho when he's talking about Sandy, and he says, uh, "He goes, uh, he says, um, oh, she, she thought she was better than it, but at the end of the day, we all the same on a slab." <laughs> and he sort of says this really kind of threatening, sort of horrible line. And when, <laughs> when one of the one of the times we went out with the cops was uh, we, um, my ex girlfriends. Uh, uh, a friend's brother was on the homicide squad in Camden. I think it was in Camden, but they, they were out of the, of the Holborn office. And we went out with a bunch of like the murder squad on a Friday night. And we, this just sounds like a made up thing, but the, 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 the <laughs> pub that we went to with the, the cops was called the three little pigs. <laughs> it was, there was what it was called. <laughs> and, and they were like, sort of, they were really getting on one, like sort of, I mean, it was a, it was a really interesting talk, but the, the white wine was flowing and sort of the kind of conversation seemed to get darker as it went along. <laughs> and at the start of the, at the start of it, one of them had said to Simon, oh, before you go, I've got to get a, an autograph for my nephew. And he brought like a Shaun of the Dead DVD. 
And then like, sort of as the conversation was going on and getting kind of darker and darker, you were getting a bit kind of, you wanted to go. <laughs> and and uh, so you said, actually, I've got to go and get a taxi. And this, by this time, the sort of the detective said, um, said, oh, and he wanted to ask for the autograph, but also he wanted to make it clear that like, you know, like mm. that Simon wasn't bigger than him. So this is what he said to Simon. He sort of got the DVD, he goes, I've got to get you to sign this thing. He goes, but... I feel like a right cunt now asking you for an autograph. <laughs> I mean, we're all the same at the end of the day. We all look the same on a slab. <laughs> si- Simon was, couldn't have signed that autograph faster <laughs> and was out of the door. <laughs> I actually signed it, seek help. <laughs> Simon will so be signing autographs up like that. Like, weirdly, like, that was, that was the one line that I kind of sat on for, like, 15 years. Why, yeah, why did you sit on it for 15 years? Well, there was no obvious place for it in the hot fuzz script, but there was tons of other stuff. Like, there's tons of stuff that's, like, from real anecdotes, like escape swans and the idea of buying cake and ice cream as punishment. And all, <laughs> of, all of that stuff is real. There's tons of, you know, we did, we did sort of ride-alongs and stuff in... We did some in, like, London in, like, sort of... Um, uh, Brixton we went down to and then and then we went on sort of like a kind of West Country tour and we went to sort of Chippenham and Froome Froome yeah and and Wells Somerset where we ended up my hometown where we ended up shooting the movie so and I find that the cops would go one of two ways they'd either be quite canny and think oh there's like two writers and obviously like Simon's a, f- a face could be done si- Sean by this point so they'd either be really canny and kind of like not give anything away and even like not swear and say SH1T, like thinking, <laughs> or they go exactly the opposite way where they tell us everything immediately. So it was really interesting. And it was, I mean, there were so many people that, there was, I think on the, on the commentary, there's like a cop commentary, isn't there? Like um, <laughs> where some of the people who were the advisors actually sort of talked about it and stuff. They all look the same on a slab. <laughs> and then just 90 minutes of silence. <laughs> no, they, they, they were, they were ones that were really kind of helpful. And, um, you know, a lot of that stuff is in there. And, but you've had a lot of, I mean, both you and Nick have had a lot of response from real cops since, haven't you? I've been let off so many speeding tickets. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I'm not even joking. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, it was really interesting doing those uh, things like the um, the, the in, in unintelligible uh, farmer. That was a true story, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, all the stuff in all the rural stories were much more weird. And uh, the, the 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 urban stuff was pickpockets and muggings. And the the, uh, the, uh, the rural stuff was like tractor theft, a lot of um, a lot of alcohol abuse, a lot of drug abuse. Someone sawed off their neighbor's head. Uh, I mean, it's all good stuff, um, but it was, it was genuinely thrilling to sort of like be able to harvest this vein of unlikely truth from all these stories, you know? So, so certain things like the, uh, like the farmer, the unintelligible farmer, I thought some of that maybe came from your own experiences growing up in the West country. Well, partly like, yeah, my, my friend's dad, like had such a thick West country accent. I know why we used to call him the penguin. Like, because um, he sort of sounded like a sort of like, it just, but he had the thickest kind of like West Country accent. And you, you, you just have to kind of like see what 10th word you could decipher. <laughs> and I'm, you know, like, so it, it, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's part of the course down that way, isn't it? So in terms of writing this thing, did you have whiteboards 
filled with sayings, filled with stories from cops. So maybe you, you did write down the all look the same on a slab just in case you write down the unintelligible farmer. How do you even begin whittling that down and focusing it into a script? Well, we always do. Edgar and I tend to, to start off in the broadest possible terms, and we usually use a flip chart and we write uh, all the ideas down and structural diagrams and you know get everything out of us onto this flip chart. And then we'll move and we sort of get smaller and smaller and smaller. So then we sort of draft it and then and finesse and finesse and finesse. So, so and, uh, literally the first thing we do is just get everything out, don't we, onto a, a sort of a, a platform that we can view and, and so we don't forget anything. Mm-hmm. And then I said that as the first draft was so long because we just vomited everything up that we sort of experienced. Um, so actually then whittling it down was, a, was quite a task. How, how different was the first draft? How, how much bigger in scale was it? Did you have to scale things down once you started thinking about budget or was it always, relatively it speaking, was, what we have now? I don't think it was anything like set piece wise. It was just kind of maybe the sort of the mystery part of it. I can't even really remember like why it was so much longer, but it was maybe like the, the, the other s- subplots. I guess there's things that are in the deleted scenes that then didn't like make it like the kind of the, um, you know, the graffiti sort of- uh, Oh yeah, suspect, the hoodies. Like, yeah, the yeah, hoodies and yeah. things. There were things that like didn't quite kind of land and that we cut out in the shooting stage, but yeah, I mean, I don't remember, but it wasn't like it was like massively bigger on an action scale. Like we sort of kind of kept that bit intact. Okay. And uh, Simon, was there a specific point um, when you were really clicked into this and you're having all these conversations with cops and I don't know whether you're a little skeptical about doing this. Did you have a project you were pushing at the time that you wanted to do with? with no, that? no, it wasn't like I had a better idea. And, um, you know, ultimately this is going to be Edgar's movie as the director. So, you know, I, I would rather he do something that he was totally invested in than, than try and drag him along to something I wanted to do, which just would never happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so I had to just find my way into it. And I, and I did. And I, I started really getting into shape and, and sort of, sort of um, you know, preparing to be Nicholas Angel and mm. uh, doing my own sort of bits of research. And, um, and I really, really started to enjoy it. So by the time we came to shoot... I was like in the best shape I've been in for years and um, I was very sort of method about it all. So where did Nicholas Angel come from for the both of you? Because he's a very particular character, especially when we meet him. Isn't he's- he Joe Cornish's brother? Well, one of, yeah, there was a num- <laughs> no, yeah, you know, Joe Cornish's brother is a, is a, is a, in the police and he is a very much like sort of Radio 4 listening, you know, somebody, we interviewed him and there was something about him that we thought was interesting is that he didn't know any like cop films he wasn't kind of <laughs> so it was that sort of like your kind of touchstone sort of like cop archetype things the sort of things that you know he's just sort of like a serious about his job and not really interested in the fictional version of it and that was something to kind of latch on to immediately so um so he was one of the sort of people who's like this idea of somebody who was just like in- incredibly passionate about their work and the idea of com- even comparing it to like hollywood movies is something very superficial and shallow you know has he seen Bad Boys 2 since? I don't think so. I'm not even sure he's seen Hot Fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in terms of the crafting of the character, were you, how do you write your characters? Do you take, does one of you take lead? It's a very collaborative process once we start. Usually we'll try and get the script onto a screen that we can both see, and then we'll take it in turns sort of piloting the, the, the typing. But we tend to do it, the, the vast majority of it, if not all of us, all of it together, 
And um, yeah, it's hard to, I, you know, I try and think about our process. It's hard to kind of be specific about it in a way. It just sort of happens. Okay, so it's not like as you don't think I'm going to play this, so I'm going to say these lines. So. Oh yeah, I mean, I kind of, but we're both looking. I tell you one thing: Edgar fucking hates it if I put a a, a, a camera move in the stage directions. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "What the hell do you think you're doing?" Um, but yeah, as an actor writing, obviously I'm writing for myself, and um, and we're writing for other people. I mean, that got to the point with the World's End that you know, in the script it was Simon, Nick, Paddy, Chris, Eddie, <laughs> uh, Chris, Martin, Eddie. Chris Martin. Uh, Chris Martin. <laughs> he was supposed to play uh, Martin Freeman's character. Um, but then we, you know, you just sort of, I don't know, you key into it. And, and I think all the time we're, we're obviously fundamentally our own roles and that we will separate into actor and director once we hit the set. But that's always there when we're writing. So I'm writing myself cool stuff. And, but then with, <laughs> you know, with, with, with Hot Fuzz, it was like, you know, I was given Nick all the best. We were given Nick all the best lines because Angel doesn't even fucking smile for 40 minutes. You know, he's not funny. And um, that was an interesting challenge for me to play just because my instinct is to mug the fuck out of everything. <laughs> my my motto is never knowingly underplayed. And um, and so to actually just be so stoic and, and, and sort of um, unamused by everything yeah. was was difficult at times. But it's those parts that, I mean, I would have to tell you this when, to talk you off the ledge sometime about that. But it's also like, it doesn't, it stands and falls on you doing that. And that's what kind of like, it, the other people aren't as funny if you're not as brilliant being, you know, like straight faced in it. And then sort of, I think that's, actually, you know, it did have a knock on effect in terms of like, when we came to the world's end, you were like, I want to be the funny one in this one. <laughs> that's so, why Gary King is such a whirlwind of stupidity. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I'm going to be funny this time. <laughs> All of Simon's pent up like stuff from from Sean and Hot Fuzz. <laughs> so the, the the idea all along then was to write a killer apart for for Nick. Yeah, and also you know, but not that, but a killer dynamic between the two of them. You know, you, you, the, Danny is this sort of wonderful, cuddly, innocent. You know, enamoured with the whole sort of Hollywood um, approach to, to to cop mythology, and and Angel is the opposite of that. And the, their very relationship sort of hinges on that on their opposition, you know? And so f in order for that relationship, Danny on his own is funny, yes, but Danny with Angel is funnier because he's playing, a lot of the time he's playing off, mm. you know? I mean, the the, the policeman officer yes. line is, is and Nick so brilliant at that. that. He's so gorgeous in that film, Nick. He really is. He's just, I want yeah. to cuddle him. <laughs> <laughs> and was that something that you might, should I ask where that came from or are we, is it too much in the weeds now? The, that line, the policeman that, officer. The policeman that was officer all, of, all the kind that's of... That's all that jargon, all the sort of vocab. PC jargon, the official vocab, like the, we, we, we found out about all of that stuff. So all of that stuff that's in the thing about you don't say accident, you say, oh, I'm forgetting my own script now. <laughs> traffic. Well, now it's changed now. You don't say traffic collision anymore. Right. You say, yeah, there are, there are different... It's PC all these, gone mad. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that was a good a tagline. That would have been a great tagline. <laughs> um... Yeah, but it was, it was interesting how that was constantly evolving. Police service and, uh, you know, not... Uh, force. Police force service. No, it's service, not force. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying it's, <laughs> We're just remembering... It's been a long time since we wrote the script. But yes, there was, it, it came all of that out of that research of just... You know, th there was a lot of kind of new speak of things that you weren't allowed to say. And also all of the words that had been made cool through TV shows and films... The force, 
you know, that you weren't allowed to say it anymore, you know. So yeah. there was, that stuff was kind of all gold. One of the things that's funny about Nick, one of the things that's funny about the film generally for me is that Simon is from Gloucestershire. And so you worked really hard as an actor to get rid of your West Country accent. <laughs> and then you do a film where everybody else in the film is doing a West Country accent except you. The only person who is from the West Country who's doing a West Country accent is like Bill Bailey and Stephen Merchant. <laughs> like who get to do their authentic accents, but everybody else is doing a West Country accent, which is hilarious. Was Nick ever worried about the accent at all? No, he so. kind of just took. I mean, it just sort of came out on the first day. You know, when we started, we always bring Nick in um, prior to everyone else coming in for rehearsals and stuff, and just go through it with him. And then he sprinkles his little magic Nick dust on it as well. And <laughs> there are things that you know he can bring to it. But yeah, when he first sort of started doing it, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, he's, he's a clever boy now. <laughs> Precisely. And uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask specifically about the movie that I've never asked you. Um, the opening of the film is voiceover by Martin Freeman. And we have that montage of Nicholas Angel being a badass cop. Uh, sorry, policeman officer. And, <laughs> uh, and there's a couple of moments that, you know, you look directly at the camera in that. I always thought that was really interesting, given that the rest of the movie doesn't really do that. Where did that idea come from? I think it was just a way for us to establish who he was uh, very economically. And, um, you know, the idea was, even though Martin's not reading that like he's in the office, but the idea is that he's, he's sort of reading out Nicholas's accolades to him in the office before they go into the scene when mm. they, they um, re... What's the word? They reassign him. Yeah. Um, but the montage, yeah. I mean, you talk about that because that's, that's your department. You were, you were running camera moves in, <laughs> smacking Simon's hand. Crash zoom. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I think I mean I, I think he does look, he does look at the camera later in the film as well. Actually, I always like that in movies where it's like there's a bit like because I think in all three of the movies Simon looks at the you know it's not something where you're looking at the camera in terms of breaking the fourth wall. It's, it's not more like, like Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. It's not like no, that. but it's almost like there's one at the end of the pub scene at the end of the pub lunch where you sort of do like an Oliver Hardy where you sort of like look directly at the camera. Like um, is there? Yeah, look what at the end of that scene. But I'm not I'm not breaking I'm not looking at the no I'm not doing like. Pork bellies, Wait. Eddie Murphy. <laughs> You're not doing that. Which is one of the most inspired glances to camera ever in Trading Places. Um, there is a very funny, you, 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 oh, you, yeah. Tim in the pub. Tim, Timothy Dalton, <laughs> there was one, his one perfect take that he did in the pub. He accidentally looked at the lens, but it was like the best take. And this is pr probably before the days where it's quite easy in digital to kind of fix that. But it was like a great take. And I thought, oh, it's such a great take, but he looks right at the camera just like buzzes the lens. So we thought we'd leave it in and we just put like a cash register noise on him buzzing the lens. So if anything, draw attention to it. So look, look out for that because he looks right at the lens and you hear a cha-ching when he does it. You know, like, I don't know why that was funny to me, but it always makes me laugh. See, that I have seen, and, but I don't think I've ever seen your little little glance at the camera. I need to see the, the film again clearly maybe you're in not watching, detail. Maybe you're not watching ITV2 enough. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody have ITV2 on them? Perhaps we could, it'll be on any second now. Um, but I was going to ask you when you had uh, last seen the film, but I imagine just last night, <laughs> just surfing through the channels. Is it something that you, you have watched? I, my daughter watches it a lot because she she just she really likes the film and sometimes I'll come in and she'll just be watching it. I I I find it difficult. I do. I, I'm so proud of Hot Fuzz and it? it's it's a film that I, you know, I'm I could have retired after. You know, I'm very very 
please. But I, it's sometimes difficult to watch yourself and um, so I don't always sit and watch it. But you, you and I watched it together. Do you remember when there was a... The New Beverly. Yeah, the New Beverly in LA when there was like a double bill of the first two before we'd done The World's End. And it's really fun to go back and there's a lot of happy memories in there for both of us, you know. Mm. So watching it is... Um, it was a tough shoot though, wasn't it, at times? It rained a lot. Yeah. It was, you guys were having fun though. I think it's tougher for... <laughs> I'd say the, the toughest thing that happened, and this is, I think this is, a, this is actually quite a good story. The, our older cast who were made up of luminaries from the British film community and people that we were so lucky to work with, Billy Whitelaw and Edward Woodward and Tim Dalton, all those people. Um, the last scene in the movie when Angel crashes the NWA meeting and they're all sat around there in their hoods and they, it's all that back and forth about, you know, what, the crusty jugglers and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> it was a night shoot and it was summer. So we had all this coverage to do for on that scene. And by the time we got done on their coverage, the sun was coming up and we couldn't get mine. It was just, it happens, you know, it things took time. Edgar does a lot of shots. Um, so we had- to sit to, between you two? <laughs> no, no, hey, come on, I'm his biggest fan. Um, <laughs> And so we had to punt my stuff a few weeks down the line. Yeah. Unfortunately, all these actors were done by then. They'd, they'd finished their work and obviously we couldn't ask them to, to, uh, to stick around just for my reverses. So we hired the local amateur drama society <laughs> to play all of those characters. Now I went from acting with literally the best actors in the country <laughs> to the fucking worst actors in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so all that, all those reverses on that scene, when I'm going, uh, you know, I can't remember any lines, but when I'm sort of, you murdered him for that, all that stuff, what I was getting back was shit. <laughs> and I, all, I, I, I literally went to Edgar on the verge of tears, going, I don't think I can do this, Edgar. Um, but we managed to get through it, and God love them. They were, you know, so helpful and so sweet. I don't think we even paid them, did we? They just came and did it. They were the local... Had any of those people even been a cadaver on Prime Suspect? <laughs> I hope none of them listen to this fucking podcast, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> the worst actor in the world. I thought they, he liked me. Com let's say comparatively, they weren't quite the caliber of the actors who I'd uh, originally done the scene with. But um, <laughs> that was honestly one of the most challenging acting experiences of my life. Is that you get what you give, you know, you, you, that's yeah. why it's always important to be there for your cast members when if you hear about actors who, who don't turn up for their reverses they're assholes because they know they're not going to give their fellow actors what they need Bruce Willis <laughs> <laughs> none of my cast members were such because they they'd just already gone it wasn't their fault they couldn't be there yeah okay so there you go it wasn't Bruce Willis just to, just to be he wasn't in the film I he think. actually was yeah. one of the people that he was yeah. <laughs> he, strangely he's in the Amdram he's in the Wells Players and I don't know why got a big tax bill that's why he's doing eight films a year so i have i have a story about that night as well which i don't know if i've ever told this story like um, not an empire but it just makes me laugh all the time i was i was also having a very stressful time around then because we had these really short nights and it was really rough and that scene that was the kind of scene that kind of broke us was the big nwa scene because i mean in reality when i look at it now it should have been a fucking set like what you actually see, we could have put dry ice and built it and like done it on the stage, but we did it for real at the Bishop's Palace in Wales, which obviously looks beautiful. We yeah. had like six, less than six hours of night. 
and all this dialogue and like 20 actors in that scene. And it was really tough. And the first couple of days of doing it was sort of a disaster. And then we had to kind of refigure it and try and figure out a different way of covering it and redistribute the lines amongst other people. And um, it was also the day that Peter Jackson was coming down to do his cameo as Santa. And the night before had been like a disastrous night where we just like hadn't even got a third of what we were supposed to have got by that. So I was already kind of having a sort of minor panic attack about the next night. And Peter Jackson was coming to do his cameo. And we just thought he'll come and do his cameo and then we'll get him dinner somewhere. So I said, do we get, we want to sit, do you want to get a table? He came down to Well Somerset on his, you know, like drove down himself um, with his assistant, Matt. And like, but come down and I said, oh, do you want us to get you dinner somewhere? And he goes, no, I thought I'd come and watch you direct tonight. So I'm like, <laughs> I was like, oh, fucking hell. Like, we're so much pressure now, now that director of Lord of the Rings is now over my shoulder. <laughs> then on top of that, there's a really funny thing that happened. And like, sort of, so Peter came to sort of, and Pete was just on set kind of taking photos. And quite a few of the other actors, like Jim Broadbent and Timothy Dalton certainly knew who Peter Jackson was. Billy Whitelaw, who then I think at that time was 75, like didn't know and also didn't really care. Like at some point she went up to me, she said, who are you, Edgar's brother? Like, <laughs> and uh, he goes, and, and then I could see, I could see like, I could see Timothy Dalton whispering, it's, that's Peter Jackson, the director. Who? Like, you know, <laughs> anyway, the, be the best payoff to that. I, by the way, I have to stress this. I love, I love Billy Whitelaw. She was amazing. And also, but Billy Wilder's one of those people who sort of like kind of is just like, you know, doesn't really give a fuck. She was like in, in the best way possible. So this, we finished doing the night and actually it goes a lot better the second night. And then the sun comes up at like five in the morning. This is before even the milkmen are in Wells. So we're like walking home. There's nobody on the streets. And I'm staying somewhere at the other end of the high street so I can walk home. I don't have a drive or anything. So we wrap, sun comes up, the bird song starts i'm walking down the high street and the only other person who's walking up the high street who's sort of been to bed and then got back up again is peter jackson <laughs> so peter jackson is the only other man on wells high street and i'm like hey i thought you'd gone to bed he goes oh i couldn't sleep i'm all jet lagged i said well why don't we have a walk around like the sort of you know the cathedral and stuff and then get breakfast he goes great so we walk around wells first thing in the morning and we go to the Swan Hotel, which is where Nicholas Angel stays, where the actors were all staying. Now, a lot of the actors who were staying there, you were in a cottage with Nick, but like all of the... Call it a love nest. <laughs> <laughs> they were all staying at the Swan Hotel, like Jim Broadbent, Peter White, um, you know, Kenneth Cranham, Timothy Dalton, Billy Whitelaw. And they, you know, because you finish a night shoot and it's like, it's your dinner and stuff. And so they would all go to the bar and the hotel would open up the bar for them. So they were all in there having like a glass of wine on wrap at 6 a.m. And I came in with Peter and I said, oh, what do you want to get? He goes, oh, maybe just get some tea and sandwiches. So we go out to order like the tea and sandwiches. And then Billy Whitelaw appears behind us, who's just wrapped. And Billy Whitelaw says, oh, just get some tea and sandwiches. And then Billy Whitelaw behind him says, and I want a fucking glass of red wine. And I want my fucking glass of red wine before he gets his fucking sandwiches. <laughs> And, you know, like, I mean... Did she? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, to this, I'm not sure if she ever figured out who Peter Jackson was, but it was a glorious moment. That's amazing. Um, so this is a, ostensibly a spoiler special, so I'm going to ask a couple of quick plot questions. Um, the, I'm sure you guys heard in the intro beforehand when I said the greater good. 
That happened. <laughs> Has that, does that happen everywhere you go, pretty much? Whenever that phrase gets said? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. So we, we shouldn't do that anymore. Somebody I, wrote yeah. it. Uh, uh, the, the, I, it might even be in the last one, but um, Chris McQuarrie wrote that line into Mission Impossible Fallout, I think it was. Yeah. And I was like, Chris... And I couldn't bring myself to say, you know, people might sort of respond to that because of my film. So I just let it be. And um, so there is, someone says, for the greater good, but it's not a fucking reference. And I just didn't have the balls to say, See, take it out. They're learning fast. <laughs> but there's, there's something that, that runs all the way through Sean and Hot Fuzz and The World's End. And it's even part of Last Night in Soho, which is this... You know, the, the heroes are up against this shadowy organization, this 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 cabal, if you will. Was that something that you deliberately wanted to insert into the plot right from the off? That, you know, this group of the NWA, which Gaga makes me laugh every single time. <laughs> my my mum, because we were from West Somerset, she was always obsessed with the Masons. And there is quite a sort of big, there is like Freemasons society in, in the town that I grew up in. But... Um, the so I used to work in the supermarket Summerfields as a shelf stacker like when I was a teenager and the name of the manager and this is something you couldn't put into the script because it would sound too silly his name was Mike Stockwell <laughs> um, that was his real name and he was really nice to me and he was always very encouraging when I was doing like amateur films and stuff but he was also he wasn't a Freemason, but he used to supply catering to their Wednesday night meeting. How do I know this? Because it's supposed to be secret, but he would go on about it all the fucking time. <laughs> so that's sort of where the idea of Skinner started to come from. I'd be like, you know, like at the end of it, after a shift, you're kind of facing up. So the supermarket's closed and you have to stay on for an hour or two and face up all the cereals or nappies or whatever. And like, I'm standing on a stool and Mike Stockwell is standing behind me saying like, uh, gotta go soon, leaving early today. The Wednesday meeting. Can't talk about it. At the Star Hotel in the conference room. Can't talk about it. So he would do this all the time. Like, and he was, basically he would go and like deliver like some like Schweppes tonic water to the Masons like meeting. So I kind of figured out, oh, that's where, that's where the Freemasons have their meeting at the Star Hotel on a Wednesday because <laughs> Mike Stockmel has told me everything. When we, when we were like then uh, scouting for Hot Fuzz, the locations, I went to the conference room in the Star Hotel and I was expecting it to be kind of like something out of a Hammer horror film. But no, it was the most boring like conference room you'd ever see. And I was thinking, did they sit in here? Did they wear the robes in here? <laughs> so that's sort of where the inkling of all that came from. And you commit to it wholeheartedly. I mean, there's a, a wonderful lack of sentiment in the way that Frank is Judge Judy and Executioner uh, as well. Was that, again, something that you had from the off that Danny's dad was <laughs> the big bad of the movie, ultimately? Yeah, I think so, yeah, because we wanted a kind of another twist afterwards uh, to, to, you know, after the reveal of the NWA. Um, <laughs> Every time. <laughs> easy E and, yeah, that's good. Um, after that, there would be another layer of, of intrigue and conspiracy. And um, it's funny, actually, when my kid watched it for the first time, she got it before the reveal. <laughs> she said, he's too nice. He's a baddie. She's 12. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I think that was always our kind of... And also how we brought Danny into that, because we kind, of, we kind of play a little trick there. When you see Danny, it looks like he knows everything. You know, it looks like he has murderous intent. But then you find out that, you know, 
Frank didn't let him in on it and stuff. So we have our cake and eat it a little bit there. But um, yeah, that was always our kind of intention. And uh, Yarp and Narp, is that something that you guys picked up growing up? No, I Narp. cannot remember where that came from. I think it was just, um, yeah, it was just, we, we wanted Lurch to say, <laughs> I, bumped into, I bumped into Rory at something recently and he just said, you fucker. <laughs> that's all i fucking get he's the I'm in hound, game of fucking thrones um yeah and then and then literally the the, the narp joke just came out organically out of the fact that you know what would what do you say is no and it, you know that was that just sort of happened but yeah, yeah. we like the idea of lurch just being kind of mono wordic mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so if you guys have any questions for Edgar and Simon, we've got about 20 minutes left. So uh, if we can get the lights up, I think we have a roving microphone. Uh, oh, bloody hell, there's a lot of hands. Uh, gentleman here in the fourth row with the face mask on and the glasses. He's just done a double thumbs up. That must be uh, weird, like pointing at gentleman in the mask. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very good point. <laughs> he has glasses, though. I do. Um, I was going to ask, what do you think is the greatest cop character then on film? Can you, they say anyone from Hot Fuzz or is that? <laughs> I thought that was an easy out, so. I thought you might say to, uh, Harry Callahan just because you're a big fan of that series. Yeah, I like, I like, um, there's a, I, I'll say Harry Callahan. There's a, there's a good sort of in-joke in Hot Fuzz is like Jim Broadbent's character is called Popwell, which is the na named after Albert Popwell, who's a, a, character oh, yeah. actor who's in the Dirty Harry film where they guy. almost complete the best in-joke in films but not quite so basically Clint Eastwood cast this actor who's also in Coogan's Bluff Albert Popwell playing like I don't know no other way to say it playing a different black stereotype in each Dirty Harry film <laughs> so in the first one he is a um Oh, what is he in the first one? In the second one, he's like a pimp. In the third one, he's a revolutionary. Oh, in the first one, he's the bank robber. He's, he's, he's a, the guy who says, I, I got to know. know. Like when, when he does the big speech to him. In the fourth one, Sudden Impact, he's his partner who then gets killed before the end. But he's not in the fifth one. And in the fifth one, he should have been the mayor. And then it would have completed that joke perfectly. But I always like that idea is like you've got the same actor in every single one playing a different thing. So that's why... Jim Broadbent's character called Albert Popwell. So let's say, I'll say Harry Cowell. No, the other cop was called Albert Popwell, the, the cop before Oh, yeah, me. yeah, of course. Yeah. Sorry, that's not Jim Broadbent's character. He's Busman. Yeah, he's the one who's gone insane. Yeah, yeah with a great big bushy beard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, for me, um, cop. Cop, cop, cop. Preferably one that can't be stopped. <laughs> Jackie Chan in Supercop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, easy out. Uh, anyone else? Uh, there's a, Thank you. Yes. Oh, oh, someone's got the microphone already? Hi, everyone. Um, just wanted to know, I watched it recently, uh, Hot Fuzz, I think on Thursday. And like with jokes, like um, everyone, I think the farmer and his mom are packing. And that pays off later on. I wanted to know what comes first, the joke or the visual? That's a good question. I think, uh, I think it's that thing like sort of like, I think that's another thing that sort of came from like the researchers stuff is that like most of the sort of guns, you know, we talk, I'll maybe ask a call about guns and they say, oh, like, you know, farmers and stuff. So I don't know, like, I, I think it's that thing that comes very quickly. We sort of like looking, I think even before we did Sean, there were lots of kind of like payoffs in space. So we're always like looking for something like that. 
So I think the things come kind of hand in hand. I think something yeah. like that would come, because there was a joke there anyway, there's like the, everyone and their mums is back around here, who, farmers, who else, farmers, mums. And then that's the joke. But then we would have thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if later on we see a farmer's mum with a gun, which confirms that that was actually true, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it's quite organic. And it's not like we kind of have both sides of a setup and payoff. Usually... They, they will grow out of the script and we'll realize later on we can pay this off by reintroducing it at a different point in the movie, you know. So um, I, th I think that's usually the way it happens, right? I can't be sure. <laughs> it's 15 years ago. <laughs> Thank you. I, th I think even more than Sean and, and The World's End, this is a gag machine. Was that the specific intent from the off to sit down and just gag, 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 gag until the end? I remember there was something like, we're obviously really proud of Sean, but I remember there was something that we sort of noticed maybe when we started showing it that in Sean of the Dead, most, a lot of the gags pay off in the middle. And then when the third act comes, it kind of starts a whole wave of new gags. And I remember like maybe us talking about, oh, it'd be great if all of the gags paid off in the third act. So it is that kind of thing. It starts to hopefully become a bit like a fruit machine playing out and it paying out in the last like 20 minutes where all of the gags pay off in quick succession. So we definitely thought about that for sure. Amazing. Okay, so any more questions? Yes, please, uh, here in the third row. Thank you. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film is the Amdram uh, version of Romeo and Juliet. Um, <laughs> With some of the best actors in the world. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I wanted to ask, why um, why that was the play um, that you chose to represent a parody of amateur dramatics? I think it was maybe like because we wanted to do the Baz Luhrmann thing. Yeah, I think we really liked the idea of it being a tribute to Baz Luhrmann's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> that just kind of made us laugh. And um, I grew up, um, um, I mean, having just been awfully disparaging about amateur dramatics, I grew up in among amateur drama people and that's why I'm, an actor is because my mom was part of amateur drama. So, you know, it was nice. It felt, it was a loving <laughs> dig, <laughs> shall we say. And I, I never, I, I absolutely love it. Never fails to make me laugh. Lucy Punch going, bang. <laughs> I like it when Martin, uh, he, he lies down and goes, no. We're just going to wake up. We, that was actually, oh no, it's the exterior. The interior was shot in High Wycombe like a little theater in High Wycombe or something. But the exterior was shot at the Amdram uh, in, in Wells. Really? When they walk out and when you see the hooded figures for the first time, that is actually Amazing. outside the Amateur Dramatic Society in Wells. Who was in the hood? Who was in that costume? Many people. But one of them was the actor Tom Cullen. His no first way. Like, job out of drama school. He reminded me of this like years later when I met him. He says, he goes, you won't remember this, but we've met before. And I said, oh, really? He goes, he goes you've directed me. And I said, really? He goes, I was one of the hooded figures in Hot Fuzz. I said, no fucking way. Wow. At any point, were any of the NWA in Under the Hood? Yeah, Timothy was in it a couple of times, for sure. And so was like Rory as well. Yeah, but otherwise it was just the end scene. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Any other questions? Hi. Um, you've talked about the NWA gag a few times today which always makes me laugh um can you think about how you when did you come up with that and did you give yourselves the day off after that <laughs> we used to go and buy records if we were a really good joke we'd go off to uh hmv at the top of Oxford street um no it was because we couldn't call it the what is it really called the nw the n what is it neighborhood watch neighborhood watch. You, we couldn't Lights. call it the neighborhood watch yeah because that's like 
So we, we decided to call it the Neighbourhood Could Watch Association. That was just the joke. And then it was just hilarious to us that it was, uh, <laughs> you know, the same name as Compton's best rappers. <laughs> <laughs> is that the gag you're proudest of in the film? What is the gag you're proudest of? In the Mine film? is the swear box. I just love that joke because of all the starred out and then it just says cunt. Also, to go back to ITV2, that joke always baffles me because they, they change Nick saying the C word in the film. They change it to prick or something. Yeah. Right. But they leave in the swear box saying cunt. <laughs> so, like, you know, for anybody who can read, which is a large percentage of the nation. Like, <laughs> Not ITV2 watchers, though. <laughs> Really losing a lot of fans tonight, Simon. <laughs> oh, all, all Amdram actors, all viewers of oh, ITV2. God, Bruce Willis, <laughs> lost them all. My whole demographic, gone. All right, oh, man. I'll choose a hand. Um, there's one over there right at the end, right at the very end, just behind you. There's, yeah, attached to someone. Good, thank you. Thank you. Uh, apart from in the film, have you ever fired a gun in the air while going, ah? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get to do it in the film. Uh, it, one of my favorite moments shooting was the morning when Nick and I ran around the corner firing off guns at, at Tim and, and, and um, Jim as they drove away in the, in the car. And just the most fun. It was like 6 a.m. as well in Wells. And we were just hairing around the corner with these two pistols, just firing them like little kids. You know, it was like playing cowboys and Indians. It was very, very fun. But no, I didn't get to do the R thing. <laughs> I should have done it in my spare time. Edgar, did you ever get to indulge in that side of things? I remember we did a shoot with Empire at the time when the movie came out. It was you, Simon, and Nick. And we had to, like, do you remember this? We had to jump off mats and stuff and turn around and twist the camera. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've actually ever, I've never fired a gun. Like, sort of even like, I mean, like, like, even on a shoot, like, so I haven't done it. Wow. Does anyone have a gun? <laughs> we could, a lifelong dream we just straight to the stage where everyone's dead. <laughs> No podcast 501. <laughs> <laughs> a hell of a way to go out. Uh, all right, more hands. Oh, my word. Edgar, do you want to choose someone? Um, it's difficult to kind of like, so with everybody that I'm asked for, it's difficult to differentiate. Um, let's go like... Uh, let's uh, have a lady. Yeah. We've had several men. So when you're making a parody film, how do you choose which films specifically to parody? Do you have like a massive list and you have to pick from them all? I think when we were doing this one, I think we sort of like watched so many films. It was that thing where it starts to become like osmosis. Like, because it's almost like that kind of monkeys and typewriters thing. Because obviously when you watch like, I mean, I think I watched maybe like a hundred movies around that time. And of course, there are several archetypes that come up all the time and so many things that are in so many films. So there's a certain point where it's sort of, there are sometimes specific references, but sometimes it's just like what kind of just you pick up by osmosis and stuff. Well, you also, I remember we read like Roger Ebert's book of movie cliches. Yeah. And we tried to put in as many of them as we possibly could. <laughs> Particularly feedback on Mike. <laughs> feedback on Mike at a public event which uh, after we did it every time it's in a movie it really bugs me yeah. in a scene where somebody's ner nervously about to do a speech and there's feedback on the mic you go oh come on <laughs> and it's usually the same sound effect we used as yes, well yes exactly <laughs> it's interesting because I'm always sort of 
the word parody, I, I was slightly kind of, um, um, what's the word? I don't want to say wince. It's that kind of thing. Just because we don't, like certainly with Shaun of the Dead, it often gets called a parody zombie film. It's not a parody zombie film. It's a zombie film. Uh, if it parodies anything, it parodies rom-coms, you know, those kind of dynamics. Hot Fuzz is much more parodic, if that's the word. But we're not in the market, we're not in the same sort of um, creative dynamic as like the scary movie people who will take very specific movie references and recreate them so that you go, oh, I know that, it's from that. With, with Hot Fuzz, it was much more the kind of the ethos and the tradition and, and those cliches that we somehow all know rather than actually saying, oh, let's do that sequence from Lethal Weapon or whatever. I, having said that, we did actually use the, the music from Lethal Weapon when they activate <laughs> the sea mine. But um, it's, 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 we're, we're less comfortable getting gags simply from familiarity than we are from actually, you know, something a little more nutritious. <laughs> we have about seven minutes left. I'm going to choose someone this time. Right in the middle. Right in the middle. Keep your hand up, sir. Yes, you with, yes, the mask. You with the blue mask on. It's a nice mask. Is that just one of those medical masks? Anyway. Yes. Okay. Good. Thank you. Going back to recreating the shot in Point Break with Danny Butterman firing a gun up in the air going, ah. What would be a film you would like to remake and why? I don't know. I always feel it's always more interesting to remake films that perhaps didn't quite reach their potential on the first go rather than remake something which doesn't need to be remade, you know. Um, or you perhaps put a different spin on it. I'm thinking about something like The Thing, you know. The Thing is a remake, but it's one of my favorite horror films ever. But it did a completely different thing with the Howard Hawks original thing from another world. Um, I, I don't know. I kind of... I don't know how I feel about remakes, really. Edgar, you'd have a, a strong opinion about that, I'm sure. I have a current bugbear is that um, of remakes with the same title as the original. Like, there's three different movies called Halloween now. It's very confusing. <laughs> and two different movies called Scream. Yep. So, I don't know. I mean, I think sort of... I, I think that's the thing is I think, like, the, we, we were kind of, I think, spoiled growing up where there were, like, some really good remakes. The F David Cronenberg's The Fly... Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm -hmm. like John Compton's The Thing, like the really sort of, did, I mean, sometimes I think more, more recent ones seem to sort of just be kind of like just doing the same thing, but just for a sort of a younger audience who maybe didn't see it at the time. So I don't know, but I, I, I agree with Simon. It's usually it's something where maybe if something, either you do a completely wild take on something or you do something that wasn't that well done before or, or, or is like a, a great idea in a maybe otherwise not great movie. I mean, why remake Point Break? Why remake Robocop? It just seems that the, the, the reason for doing that just seems exactly what Edgar just said, which is maybe some people didn't see the original. Well, they fucking should. <laughs> I, mean, I think is the answer. I just realized we might be getting into the sort of territory where people one day might go, hey, let's remake Shaun of the Dead or let's remake Hot Fuzz. How would that make you feel? Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I thought so. And on that note, that's it. <laughs> no, we got, we got a couple more minutes. Uh, SH1T. Uh, yes, please. You, sir. Cheers. Uh, I work in locations, um, and I have a location-specific question, if that's all right. Um, having kind of based the movie and filmed the movie in an area you knew from growing up, at what point do real-life locations and kind of practicalities of it kind of merge in for you? Like, where... Does the setting come in the writing process and are you thinking of specific things 
in places. Well, it's funny you mention that because I'm from Wales, Somerset, and I kind of obviously wrote the scripts with that in mind. And in fact, at one point, we went down to Wales, Somerset and wrote some of the scripts. We rented a flat in, above, above the market square and like wrote for maybe a week or two weeks. But I never thought we'd shoot there because I thought because of the nature of the script saying that the townsfolk are xenophobic killers, that maybe <laughs> that they would not be happy about that. And so it ended up as we went, we did a big, this is what's really dumb is we, me and the location manager, Ben, went around the country, mostly around the Southwest, looking for another towns. And it was just kind of staring us in the faces like Wells is the best option. And I have to say that they were like really on board and they're like, you know, you can do like a hot fuzz walking tour now. <laughs> and I was sort of terrified about people kind of like finding out about the content of the script and us getting in trouble. And when we were shooting that scene, the sort of the, the same kind of near disaster scene in the Bishop's Palace, we had not given the script to anybody in the town because of that fact of like, they'd say, hey, this is about us. Like, um, hey, we're xenophobic killers. This is about us. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're shooting that scene, just to add extra pressure on top of Peter Jackson being there, the location manager says, ah, the Bishop of Bath and Wells would like to come down and watch you filming. <laughs> So I'm like kind of going, oh, no, now, now we're in trouble. Like the Bishop of Bath is going to come down. He's going to see the scene where they're talking about the conspiracy <laughs> and like saying, what is this movie? How is this portraying Well Somerset? And so we were shooting that scene and the Bishop of Bath Wells also came down to the set in full regalia as well. <laughs> and then this genuinely happened. Is that I'm, watching, I'm sort of looking at him out the corner of my eye. How is he going to react to this scene? And after the first take of the scene, he brings out a fun camera from his robes. <laughs> he winds it on and he starts taking photos. And he was like perfectly happy. I thought you were going to say machete then. <laughs> I had weird things though because I was from Wales. I hadn't lived, my parents had moved out by that time, but there were strange things that happened during the shoot. Like I'll tell you two stories quickly. Uh, and now I do have something to play before we go. Um, okay, two stories. It's like one was... Uh, we're shooting a night shoot in the, in the car park. I think the bit with you and, and Nick and Ron Cook, where you're like walking him home when he's drunk or carrying him home. And this is the kind of thing that happened is that I used to live in a, like a street called Southover. Uh, 40 Southover is where I used to live. And so in the middle of the night, like sort of three o'clock in the morning, this couple comes up to me and says, are you Edgar Wright? I said, yes. I said, did you used to live at 40 Southover? I said, yes. He goes, here's your post. <laughs> And, and it's true. And handed me a massive pile of, of just like the, all of the junk mail that I hadn't seen in like. And then there's another thing. This is like a true story. So when, when I used to work at the supermarket, there was a friend of my, he was in my brother's year. His name, his name was Darren Curtis. And I was making amateur films at the time. And I'd been on like going live at this point as a 16 year old. And I'd sort of like won a competition on TV. So I'd been in the local paper, the Wells Journal. But I was working as a shelf stacker in Summerfield. And this guy, Darren, his joke to me would be, so I'd be like standing on a stool facing something up. Well, my supermarket things revolve around stools. But he'd come up to me, and this is what Darren would say. He goes, excuse me, are you the famous director, Edgar Wright? <laughs> that would be his joke every week, pretending he was like an autograph hunter. This is in 1991. <laughs> Cut to 2006, 15 years later. We're shooting the scene, the night shoot, where you and Danny are outside, like about to go back to Danny's place. And I hear this voice and he says, 
excuse me, are you the famous shelf stacker, Edgar Wright? (laughs) (laughs) Now that is... It's worth stressing that I hadn't seen him in the 15 years in between. That's a better payoff than anything in Hot Fuzz. (laughs) I mean, I just had to say thank you, Darren, for an amazing callback. That is extraordinary. Um, And we do have something to play, don't we? If my battery hasn't died. Better not have done. Oh, Lord. Does anyone have a battery charge? No, I think we're going to be good. We're good. All right. Okay, let me turn this up and make you sure. Want to put some con- should we contextualize this? Yeah, well, there was supposed to be a third person here today, um, Mr. Nick Frost, and he couldn't make it, and he'll, now he'll explain why. Let's see if I can get this up. Hey, guys. Hello, everyone here at the Hot Fuzz thing. Um, happy birthday, Empire podcast. Um, I'm so sorry I cannot be there. Um, I couldn't wait to see little Simo, little Eggy. And uh, we were going to go and have a lovely meal afterwards, but that's now been ruined because of something called COVID, um, which my three-year-old has contracted, sadly. And we're all feeling a bit achy. So I hope you have a lovely time. If I have to, I'll try and keep this short, I guess, because Edgar might be holding a microphone to his (laughs) phone. Um, I love making hot fuzz. I thought it was really amazing. And I felt like we were a little Lars von Trier-style gang of filmmakers kind of shacked up down in Somerset, you know, like there was a a guy called Tom who was a carpenter who was an amazing trumpeter and he'd play the trumpet all the time and then like we'd we bowled against the town and stuff. (laughs) It just felt like a really amazing summer and I really liked the fact that we went to do night shoots and because it was the summer, we couldn't start till about 11 and we probably had to wrap it off three. I was like, oh, my God, I love it. Okay. Um, Simon and I had a lovely little cottage with a pool, weirdly. And we did a thing called breakfast wine if we did night shoots, which was great. We got in the pool and drank wine at 7 a.m. Um, you know, you getting to hang out with Paddy and Bill and Kevin Eldon and, you know, Olivia and... A great big bushy beard. Is that the <laughs> lovely Jim? Jim was very quiet. He loved his um, crosswords. Um, I'm bubbling. Now, I heard there's a place in a man's head that if you shoot it, it will blow up. Um, all of these things. I just really, really loved it. Um, if there was a downside, it was one of the times Simon and I had a really big argument. <laughs> uh, we were sat in the police car waiting for... Um, Lucy Punch's character and her partner, my mind is terrible, to whiz by when we had like the speed detector. And for some weird reason, Simon and I had like a massive fight in the car. And like at one point, someone had to like point to their ear to say that we're mic'd and everyone could hear us. <laughs> and then we just, we didn't talk for two hours. It was weird. Um, good times. Good times. Anyway, listen, um, maybe Empire, you, I can come and do a Hot Fast special. Um, just me without those other two jerks one of which has just got two BAFTA noms <laughs> um, have an amazing time and um, if you're going to go and eat Edgar and Simon just send me some pictures of it I'm stuck in here having to clean spinachy shit from a six month old Anu. Uh, bye guys, Merry Christmas
That was like... Uh, That was like an answer phone message my gran used to leave me. <laughs> I'm sorry to report that since he left that voice note, Nick Frost has passed away. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to sound like, it's like he's dead. <laughs> we did have a row, but it was, I think it's probably the only one, maybe one of the three we've ever had, but it, it wasn't serious. He's, you remember what it was about? We were just sick of each other. <laughs> we were living together, working together. You know, it's strain on a relationship. <laughs> Well, uh, on that note, uh, uh, this is it, I'm afraid, for the Hot Fuzz spoiler special, but it has been a ton of fun. I'm going to say goodbye now to famous shelf stacker, Edgar Wright. <laughs> and famous... Absolutely. And, of course, famous writer and actor, Simon Pegg. They all look the same on a slab. Thanks so much for coming. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.